Today's speaker is uh, Hakan Yavuz, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Utah. Um, Hakan grew up in uh, Turkey and went to university in Turkey and then uh, undergraduate university in Turkey and then came to the United States where he got a master's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hakan's, most, most of Hakan's research has been on Turkey, but he has also been engaged uh, more recently in a project uh, in Uzbekistan, uh, and he has spent a lot of time in the Fergana Valley. I'm not sure today to what extent he's going to talk about that during the presentation, but you may have some questions uh, in which you can get him to relate uh, Turkey uh, to um, uh, Central Asian uh, Islam. He's the author uh, most notably of Islamic Political Identity in Turkey, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2003. And he's also the author and co-editor with John Esposito uh, of Turkish Islam and the Secular State, published by Syracuse University Press um, also in 2003. Um, Unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be a, a, a paperback version yet of uh, the book, so I don't have that available, but I do have a paperback version of the edited book in which many of his uh, ideas about Islam and politics are uh, are developed. Um, one of the reviewers of the main book, Islamic Political Identity in Turkey, uh, said, for a very long time, we were accustomed to thinking that Islam in general and political Islam in particular were fundamentally opposed to the realization of the basic aims and ideals of Turkish modernization. The social and political transformations that took place in Turkey in the 1980s and 1990s have shown, however, that far from constituting a contrary force, Islam now plays a decisive role in the success of Turkish modernization in the broader and universal sense of the term. Uh, in this important book, that's the reference to uh, the Oxford University Press book, Hakan Yavuz explains how Islamic identity came to occupy such a central place in modern Turkey. I think that is indeed the major contribution of the book. And if I put that in my own terms, I see in reading through uh, Hakan's work two characteristics that uh, are really attractive to me. And one of them is the openness with which he sees Islam the possibility of interpreting, of understanding meanings and so forth in Islam, uh, which is as capacious as any approach, I think, to understanding the politics of Islam as I have seen. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the imaginative use of social movement theory, which will be attractive to many people in this room, Uh, The imaginative use of social movement theory, in particular the idea of opportunity structures, uh, to link uh, the way in which religion and politics have been developing in Turkey uh, and uh, elsewhere. So uh, there's an exciting research agenda here and uh, I think some exciting research product uh, so far. Hakan. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for the invitation. What I would like to do today is um, to share you some of my ideas about my new project. Uh, it is, in a way, a project both as a scholar, also as a public intellectual, 
to try to participate in a larger public debate in the United States, also back in Turkey. Um, the, this is a project very much evolves um, in response to the debate emerging in the United States after September 11. What we are seeing both in academia and in uh, policy circles, people talk about the Muslim world as the other or as the homogenous entity, the way in which it is presented. In other words, what we are seeing is othering or uh, constructing Islam as the other and Islamism as the enemy. And then this Islamic world somewhat defined by this um, uh, Islam as a religion or as an enemy, sometimes referred as civilization, civilization in the case of Huntington. Um, I think it is time to deconstruct or disaggregate this so-called Muslim world and also it is time to differentiate Islam from Islamism Islam is a religion it is a faith it is a tradition uh, whereas Islamism uh, is an attempt to utilize Islam uh, to challenge or accommodate modernity or search for legitimacy. It is Islamism as the politicization of faith. Um, very much it also has its own history, the way in which Islam turned or constructed or reconstructed as Islamism, especially in the 19th century. So um, what we are seeing that in the Muslim world, Islam... Uh, is referred as an identity, both as a personal identity and communal identity, Islam as a source of legitimacy, both at the political level and normative level, and Islam is also the grammar of everyday life in terms of deciding what is right and what is wrong. In other words, I see a fundamental, the larger problem especially in the Middle East and in different Muslim countries, is the search for legitimacy, especially search for normative order after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. In other words, the Ottoman system, it, is, it was a system in terms of providing a set of rules and norms both for the Balkans and Caucasus and larger Middle East. With the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and nation states, unfortunately, failed to create both internally and externally that shared charter of the normative order. I would argue one of the fundamental crises in the region today is this lack of normative charter in the Middle East. And especially when the United States comes with the guns and weapons to set this top-down normative system, it certainly creates more problem, and Islam turns into an Islamism to fight or challenge old or the new colonial entities. When we talk about Islamism, there are five different forms of Islamism comes to my mind. One Islamism as NGOs, 
Islamic networks, Islamic associations, it becomes the spiritual capital to create associational life. Second, Islamism as an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist ideology that was very much used in the Balkans, in North Africa, in different countries to challenge the colonial powers. So, Islamism as NGO, Islamism as anti-colonial ideology, and third, Islamism as a counter-public sphere, when the public sphere is defined by the secularizing nation-building states, what you see Islam is utilized to carve a counter-public vis-a-vis the state or the authoritarian entities. The fourth Islamism as a vernacularization of modernity. This, what we are seeing in many countries, especially in the frontier zones of Islam, or in the case of Malaysia, Indonesia, Tataristan, Bosnia, Herzegovina, or in Turkey, what we are seeing is that the modernity with Islam, not modernity without Islam. In order to justify these processes of modernity, you need to vernacularize it. And what we are seeing is that Islamism means modernization. It is not what the Daniel Lerner said in his Passion of Traditional Societies, Mecca or Mechanization. He said the Turks have option between Mecca or Mechanization. But what we are seeing is that the modernity or the economic development doesn't necessarily mean the end of religion. It reactivated, it helped us to reimagine, recreate Islam in, in different contexts. And what we are seeing, the finally, Islamism as a developmental project, Islamism as a developmental project in the case of Mahathir Muhammad in Malaysia, to use Islam to mobilize the masses and create a work ethic to uh, have a larger share for the Muslim community in the case of Malaysia. So the Islamism, uh, also one might define Islamism as a jihadism as well. There are aspects of jihadist dimension as well. So the Islamism again makes sense in the context there is no one version of Islamism the way in which some people are trying in Washington or in the universities to create. When we look at the politicization of Islam or these five different definitions of Islamism, what we are seeing is that there are different patterns of politicization of Islam or different reconstruction of Islam. And I try to uh, create these patterns of relation by looking at different countries. What I would like to argue, that what we have, seven different competing and conflicting zones of Islam, or seven different patterns of the politicization of Islam. The first Zone is Arab zone. Second zone is Persian zone. Third zone is Turkish zone. Fourth zone is South uh, Asian zone, which includes India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. 
fifth zone is Southeast Asian zone, Malaysia and Indonesia. I call it sometimes Malay zone. Sixth zone is the African zone. Seventh zone is the diaspora zone. Again, diaspora or minority zone, we will come to that. But for my talk, I would, I would prefer to only focus on Turkish and Arab zones. Um, I think Arab zone is very important. Even though Arabs are only 27% of Muslim population or the Ummah, but the Arab countries somewhat put the public image of Islam. So it is important to look at the Arab zone and also what we are seeing, more anti-Americanism or or more radical movements are somewhat active in the Arab zone. The Arab zone is very much shaped by five factors. I call them factors. One, the tribalism or asabiya somewhat still dominant, even though the goal of Islam was to overcome tribalism and and create more urban culture, but the tribalism was one of the issues that the Prophet Muhammad tried to cope with by creating a new identity, Muslim identity, to overcome tribalism. But somewhat Islam is defeated in terms of achieving this goal of overcoming tribalism in the heartland of Islam. So tribalism, asabiya, is still dominant. <coughs> Second factor that the, after the death of Prophet Muhammad in 632, Arab, uh, Arabs managed to create two major empires, the Umayyad Empire, then the Abbasid Empire, then the collapse of the Abbasid Empire in 1258, which is the, as important as 1967 in terms of the Arab identity, this collapse of time, how time collapsed in 1258 and 1967, and rest of the dates become meaningful somewhat in relation to these two dates. So this historical legacy is something very important in addition to tribalism. The third major factor in the Arab zone was the imperialism. Today's so-called Middle East subsystem is very much created after the World War I. The most of the states were created by imperialist powers, France or Britain, and still the region is in search for legitimacy, both in, both in the national or at the regional level here. But the imperialism somewhat hijacked Islam the imperial conditions forced Muslims to reimagine Islam as an anti-colonial ideology and jihad became the core of Islam in a way that the Islam very much reduced the jihad to fight against imperialist power. And then what comes after the imperialism is these nation states with the goal of creating national identity, both against the tribalism and pan-Islamic and pan-Arab identities, but there are problems as we see still today. And fourth factor is the Arab-Israeli conflict. Arab-Israeli conflict very much, especially in 1967, 
created a siege mentality, it, it, it really turned Arab communities against the West, especially the United States. And then the, the fifth factor, I think the most important in terms of explaining contemporary politics in the Middle East is oil. Oil became a curse in terms of creating a rentier state by freeing the state from the taxation and preventing the connection between taxation and representation in the Arab world. And oil also created an overdeveloped state bureaucracies and undermined the civil society. And oil also undermined the work ethic in the region, especially in the Gulf. Finally, oil turned the Middle East into a zone of imperialist powers, Britain, later on United States. So the oil made the region hostage to the needs, energy needs of the United States, Europe, and now China and other countries. So the oil very much both domestically and internationally at the center of some of the problems in the region. And because of this overdevelopment of the state structure, somewhat the religious bureaucracy or the religious scholars also lost their autonomy as well. And what we have today in the Arab zone, three forms of politics. These three forms of politics, one is a parliamentary politics, we see it happens sometimes, but mostly in Lebanon, and also it is somewhat successful in the case of Turkey. The second form of politics is a street politics, when you don't have parliamentary um, chances, when the oil prices goes down and state tries to cut the subsidies, and impose IMF type of policies, it creates a riots, and we have seen it early 1980s. So the second form of politics is the street politics, when people try to express their views and opinions. When street politics is not available as well, then what is available is the basement politics. Basement politics is the gangs or the cells or the Al-Qaeda type of organization. So the region is somewhat stuck between street politics and basement politics, what we are seeing in this part of the region. And Islam very much defined as an counter or oppositional movement, both against the domestic systems and against the international system, especially the U.S. hegemony in the region. So Islamism, in a way, becomes an anti-globalization ideology today in the region, and this globalization is very much defined in terms of American culture and American hegemony in this part of the region. So and Arab-Israel conflict even makes the situation worse because the United States has been somewhat consistent in terms of supporting, regardless of the, any government in the case of Israel, it creates more anger and frustration in the Middle East. And the, 
The second zone is the Persian zone. So it makes sense why Arab zone is anti-West and anti-American, given the historical legacy of the region. In the Persian zone, again, let me just uh, mention the main factors which shapes the Persian zone and their understanding of Islam. One is the Persian zone is very much Shia, and this is not a nomadic culture, this is a high culture of Iran or the Persia. The urban centers played a very key role historically. And Safavid Empire, then the Qajar Empire, then the Pahlavis, somewhat the, re, uh, the Persia uh, or today's Iran um, managed to maintain a autonomy, even though in the late 19th century there were some colonial influence and uh, attempt, but the oil again becomes a key here, especially with the oil 1953 Mossad coup that uh, made the United States as the other of the Iranian nationalism and also the Islam and Iranian nationalism somewhat created a coalition against the United States. When we come to the Turkish zone, in the Turkish zone, the Islam in the zone is somewhat a contested fate between heterodox and orthodox Sufi orders, but it is very much a Sufi Islam. The second major characteristics of Turkish zone, it is a state-centric culture. The state, the Ottoman Empire, was a frontier empire. Being a frontier empire, it has a number of implications. One, frontier conditions help to maintain this tension between heterodoxy and orthodoxy and created a degree of liberalism. Second, frontier conditions stress the need for security and security somewhat integrated into Turkish identity and thus stress the role of the military. I think the frontier conditions both empower the military and in relation to this in need for security. And in the Turkish zone, or in Turkish case, we also, there is no colonialism. Uh, and thanks God, there is no oil. No oil was, uh, very little, but it, I think it doesn't count much. And um, in the Turkish zone, it is an no Arab-Israeli conflict. The last war Turks involved in was in 1974 over Cyprus. Turks somewhat won, and there is no defeated psychology as well, unlike in the case of the Arabs. So in the Turkish case, um, also with the, in the late 19th century, Turkish identity somewhat defined in opposition to Russia because most of the wars were engaged against Russia. And with the Cold War conditions, somewhat... This, this Turkishness was consolidated in terms of defining against the Soviet Union or the communism. So, and Turkey found security against Soviet Union in, in, in NATO and aligned itself with European institutions. So you don't have that colonial legacy and also no such a defeat. And moreover, the Cold War somewhat identified 
Turkish national interest within the context of NATO and Turkey's relation with NATO very much shaped Turkish foreign policy and it also empowered the Turkish military and it had to create a dual government in Turkey. Dual government or the parallel government means military versus elected civilian government. I think the U.S. military aid and Cold War conditions played a crucial role in terms of empowering and creating this military uh, another layer of uh, source of power in Turkey. Let me now go a little bit deeper and talk about what is going on in the case of Turkey and why do we have such a major transformation in Turkey today that the Islamic movement in Turkey used to be very anti-West. Now, Islamic movement is in government in Turkey, and they are the most pro-European movement. So how should we explain the change? What I argue that there is a cognitive revolution taking place in Turkey, and this cognitive revolution is also one of the key reasons of anti-Americanism in Turkey as well. Uh, I will come to that, but before I come there, let me uh, indicate that in the case of Turkey, there is a uh, uh, silent revolution in terms of the end of the dual government between civilian versus the military. In Turkey, very much governed by the National Security Council, and Turkish generals were dominant. They very much behaved like the Iranian mullahs, the guardians of the revolutionary guardians, in terms of setting the boundaries of the parliamentary politics. I think that came to an end um, in 2004 as a result of constitutional changes. The second major revolution in Turkey is in the political language of the country changed a great deal in terms of what we mean by politics, what we mean by state, how would you define Turkishness, or what, what, what is the role of secularism and how do you define secularism as well. The third revolution, I call it in the the security, the concept of security was very much defined in terms of the security of the state and then the security of the ideology, but now you have a different sense of security in terms of the jobs, in terms of the social security, and what we are seeing in Turkey today, a pacifism or the Europeanization of Turkish politics and Turkish foreign policy especially. So the Turks, they don't see the military as a solution to the conflict. This is why the Turkish military also losing its own domestic power in Turkey. This is one of the reasons why the Turks identify with Europe rather than United States, especially the events in Iraq created a major anger and frustration in Turkey. What is at the center of this silent revolution that I I identify three major implications in terms of the end of the dual government, recreation of a new political language in Turkey, and redefinition of the security? I argue that at the core of this 
Turkish Revolution is the new emerging Anatolian bourgeoisie. And so this new bourgeoisie is at the center of the silent revolution in the country. And I would like to now focus a little bit about the characteristics of this bourgeoisie and possible uh, counter-argument and because the European Union now becomes the only uh, roadmap for the country. If Europe rejects Turkey, then what would happen? What type of reactions are likely to emerge? Um, Turkish state, it was a modernizing state. It Ideology uh, defined itself as a Kemalism. Kemalism means a top-down revolution of creating a nation, secular nation-state. So the nationalism and secularism became the two fundamental goals of the state ideology. And any challenge to these two goals defined as a threat. So what you have both the Kurdish identity and Islamic activism or Islamic identities were securitized. They are treated as a threat to whatever defined as a threat to this Kemalist ideology. Very much a state tried to exclude out of ordinary or formal political debate and discussion. With the multi-party system in 1950s, Islamic groups and some of the Kurdish groups were included into multi-party system, but under different surrogate identities, and Islamism somewhat created a room for the Kurds as well. So most of the Kurdish politicians involved in Islamic parties as well. So the Islam became a melting pot. In other words, Islam in Turkey today is a space in between ethnic identities, whether you are Boshnak, Albanian, Kurd, or Turk. It, Islam doesn't solve the ethnic tension, but it helps to manage it. It, it helps to create a new space for negotiation or for compromise. And Islamic parties played this role uh, very successfully, I would argue. And, but the major the, the, uh, change in Turkey came with the neoliberal economic policies of Turkut Özal. With the neoliberal economic policies, what happens, the expansion of the opportunity spaces helps these oppressed and suppressed identities, sometimes with the help of the Cold War, that identities were oppressed with the Kurdish or the Islamic identities. And now, with the neoliberal economic policies, no more Cold War, what happens? This uh, coming out process starts to emerge in Turkey for the Alevi identity, for Kurdish identity, for Islamic identity. They all try to come out in the public sphere, and then it created a major fear on the part of the military establishment. But this, uh, this was one of the implications of this liberalization of Özal. But the second, I would say, more important impact was 
the attempt to create an alternative economy or, or new bourgeoisie very much emerged in, in Anatolia. When we look at this new bourgeoisie, what I call it the economic opportunity space created by neoliberal economic policies of Turku Tozal, this new bourgeoisie became the engine of redefining both the political language and the orientation of the country toward Europe. This new bourgeoisie is very much active in textile and construction, especially textile and also in some heavy industry. And they would like to see Turkey to move toward Europe, Europe as the larger market. And they don't see... Turkey's orientation toward Europe not as a civilizational project. They see it as the coexistence of different cultures and different civilizations. In other words, there is a debate in Turkey over European orientation. On one hand, the secularists, they see the European orientation of the country within the framework of Kemalism to end uh, the identity debate to become Europe. In other words, becoming European very much defined Turkish identity within the framework of Kemalism to give up everything, to melt within European identity by assuming that the Europeans are going to accept. In other words, this vision very much viewed Turkey becoming a sugar inside the coffee to disappear. The second version of becoming European or moving toward Europe, it sees Turkey to become a milk or cream of the coffee rather than sugar of the coffee, to change it, color it, not to give up, not to melt everything. And uh, this is the second group is very much led by the Islamic-oriented, and they don't see European and Islamic identity mutually exclusive or contradictory, but very much two, um, two completing forms of identity that they are, from their perspective, not in tension. One might see differently from the Kemalist pers- perspective. But the change toward Europe, because Islamic movement was very much anti-European, in the 1960s and 1970s as well, very critical of the European project, and because uh, the petty bourgeoisie is somewhat dominant in the Islamic movement. But today's Islamic movement is dominated by new emerging um, uh, big corporations and companies, and what you have, they are in search for a larger market, and they are more confident, and uh, they, they see the power of Islam in terms of creating a networks of social mobility and Islamic networks also helpful to create a social capital in terms of trust, in terms of information. When you send the goodies from one town to another town, you need to be sure that it is paid. So these networks, uh, Islamic networks also turned into a somewhat business exchange networks, especially Turkey's trade with some of the Balkan and some European countries. So what we are seeing, in a way, 
what Daniel Lerner, what they argued, the Mecca or mechanization, this, this contrast between secularism and religion or modernity and religion, Mecca versus mechanization, what is happening today is very much the recreation of Mecca, but this is a very different Mecca than the Mecca of 1940s or the 20s. Mecca, I mean religion, the God, the, what you make of your own religion. Today, people are recreating their religion, their notion of God within the context of mechanization. So there is this new empowerment as a result of modernity, and it helps people to reimagine, recreate come to terms with religion. So what the Max Weber, for instance, argued in terms of Protestant ethic leads to capitalism. In the case of Turkey, I would argue that the capitalism is creating a Protestant Islam. What we are seeing is that the, the business-friendly, business-oriented, somewhat Turkish Muslims succeeded to find the verse in Quran to justify capitalist economic relations. So the arrow is somewhat moving from the capitalism to this new Protestant Islam. Let me uh, conclude, I don't have much time, uh, in terms of implications of this uh, opportunity spaces, uh, especially in the public sphere. This new Anatolian bourgeoisie start to use economic wealth to create a private education, private high schools, private universities, so education system is not dominated by the state. And also Turkey today is one of the most media-saturated country in terms of 100 national TV, 1,000 radio stations, newspapers and magazines very much funded by this new emerging um, the, the financial means from this new emerging Anatolian bourgeoisie. So the public sphere is thickened. Civil society is also thickened. And what is the result as far as Islam in Turkey is concerned? What we are seeing when Islamic groups, they move to the market, we see the fragmentation or pluralization of Islam. It is a total collapse of religious authority when you introduce TV and multiple newspapers and too many different voices shaped by regionalism, economic interest, or ethnicity. So Islam becomes a contested zone and neither Kemalism nor Islamism manage to create hegemony. Hegemony is somewhat lost. So one sees the, this deconstruction, both Kemalism and Islamism becomes a contested zone as a result of these new opportunity spaces in economy linked to media and also with the political opportunity spaces. And these three very much created this uh, more pluralist form of Islam. So Islam as a discipline and complex of mind and body um, very much deconstructed and it is used for different 
purposes. And what also we see as a result of these opportunity spaces, especially the influence of the Europe because of the European orientation of the country that the Turkey wants to join the European Union, um, we see also this attempt to reimagine Islam within, according, well, in in relation to European Union, not in opposition to European Union, but in relation to European Union, that a type of Islam needs to find a space in Europe. It needs to redefine itself according to needs of Europe as well. So both this domestic change in terms of opportunity spaces and external pressure from the European Union help to create a, a new or in the process of creating a new <coughs> Turkey, I would argue that this Turkey is somewhat very much rule-oriented, pacifist, and doesn't see military as a source of solution to regional or domestic or international conflict. This is one of the reasons, I would say, of anti-Americanism in Turkey. And second factor of anti-Americanism in Turkey is the U.S. policies in Iraq, especially U.S. attempt to empower the Kurdish um, Kurdish section of the Iraqi population and also some different voices in Washington that the, that the Iraq might be better off if it is divided into pieces coming from some think tanks, not necessarily from the policy, uh, the, the, the administration itself. It also creates a major um, anger inside Turkey. Uh, and finally, Turkey also wants to accord or harmonize its policies uh, with Europe, and this European attitude toward United States very much shapes Turkish attitude toward U.S. as well. In a way, the Turkish-European relations somewhat shape Turkey's attitude toward United States in this case very much the anti-Americanism is all over in Canada, in Mexico, and especially in Europe, certainly uh, in Turkey as well. And I will finish here. Thank you. So after Turgut Ozal came Suleiman Demirel and Tansu Cheller and then Malka, which one of these prime ministers would you include as a representative of the Turkish Union? Uh, let's say Turgut Ozal would be the first one if someone can count that. Uh, I think Type Erdogan, I see the current prime minister and governing justice and development party as the outcome of this Anatolian bourgeoisie, very much the split in the Islamic movement uh, with the Congress of the Virtual Party when uh, Abdullah Gül emerged as a candidate against uh, Erbakan's choice. And Gül, he was the first prime minister of the Justice and Development Party. He was supported by Musiyat, this Anatolian bourgeoisie, that they have their own organization and they hand out their own orientation and policies. 
and Musiat very much supported Gül against old guard. So uh, the current government, I would argue, is very much the baby of this ongoing transformation in Turkey. The Tayyip Erdogan, he is the representative of this new Anatolian bourgeoisie. Yes? The Roman Catholic Church just chose a new pope. And in one of his first statements, uh, the pope said that Europe is a Christian continent and that uh, very strongly, like Christian sentiment, I should say, how do you think this effect will affect Turkish-European relations and their prospects for the, the, uh, the EU? Well, the good news is that the uh, Joseph Ratzinger is 78 years old. <laughs> so, um, but uh, the Pope made those statements before he was elected, and um, I don't think uh, Europeans are going to really, especially. I think there is a debate in Europe. The Turkish membership is very much what type of Europe the Europeans are going to have. It is a debate over European identity. Is Europe is going to define itself as homogenous Christian civilizational project. Some of the Christian Democrats uh, call and um, uh, some uh, Merkel and some other in France they want to see, including the Pope, or Europe wants to become a multicultural space allowing diversity to flourish. Uh, I think uh, if the Labour Party prevails, if the Social Democrats prevail in Germany, I don't think there will be much problem. But if they lose, then uh, I think there will be a number of problems. But again, I don't necessarily believe that Turkey is going to become a member but I think this process is more important than the arrival itself. I don't think Turks can overcome European um, European perception of Turkey and Turks. And uh, also, given the Muslim minorities in France, in other European countries, I think those relations in France or in Germany or in Britain will shape those countries' attitude toward Turkey. It will be very much colored by Islam. So, um, but I think this process itself is very important. And Turkey has a tariff union with the custom union with the European Union. And Turkey may not need Europe, really. And we don't know whether in France, end of the month, there is a referendum. We don't know what Europe is going to do. And Turkey is somewhat connected with European institutions. And I don't think the European Union process is very important for Turkey to domesticate Turkish military, to control the Turkish military and also to control some of the radical Islamic forces in the country to have a road map. So I think this European Union uh, process is very important. But the final membership, I am very skeptical. I don't think it's not up to Turks. It's very much up to Europeans. I don't think the Europe is ready. I don't think Europe solved its own identity crisis and uh, still the debate is going on in, in Europe, and I, I don't think there's a chance for Turkey. 
Yes. I'm struck by the role of capitalism and the bourgeoisie in your arguments, and, and it suggests a liberal narrative for the rest of the Islamic world in which as capitalism penetrates further, you'll get more Protestant revolutions, so to speak, secularization, and peace will break out, everything will be fine. <coughs> I guess I'm wondering, do you intend that kind of liberal narrative, and if not, why not? I think it depends on what type of capitalism. In, uh, in Saudi Arabia or in Gulf countries, um, if, if, if it's a text-based capitalism, and I think it will help to domesticate the forces. It will free Islam from the control of the state. So right now in Saudi Arabia, many other countries, religious clergy or the religious authority is somewhat integrated into the system as a bureaucracy. So they become the nothing but the state bureaucrats. But if you have an independent uh, bourgeoisie outside the control of the state, that bourgeoisie is more likely to fund and support its own version of Islam. And that type of Islam is going to become a type of Islam which would take the bourgeoisie interest and concerns into account, especially the stability and especially the Islam defined as work ethic and moral aspect will be stressed more than political aspect. And I would argue that the economic forces are key and essential here uh, in terms of helping to create a civil society, democracy, and this also presupposes pluralist Islam. You cannot have pluralist Islam, from my perspective, if you don't have a middle class. And this pluralism or pluralist reading of Islam requires some economic resources to contain your associations, your university, your madrasa, your school, your textbook. And that requires an economic, uh, independent economic resources. So I, I am in this sense, I am very hopeful for the frontiers of Islam, I am hopeful for Malaysia, Indonesia, because of of the emerging bourgeoisie, the indigenous bourgeoisie. I am very hopeful in Tatarstan what is going on there, given the historical legacy of the Jadidism. I am very hopeful for Bosnia, what is going on there, and very hopeful for Turkey as well. But I am very pessimistic when it comes to the Arab world. I think Arab world represents the past of Islam future belongs to those societies where you have powerful market forces at play. And especially um, outside the control of state. Yes? Um, in your um, presentation, you noted that the Islamist movement uh, in Turkey was very much the anti-European project in the 60s and 70s, and then, um, and then present, it's the most pro-EU force in Turkey. However, um, as late as 1997, the Islamist movement in Turkey, as I remember, was very much anti-Western, had a very much anti-Western rhetoric, and I don't see the, the significance of 
economic um, opportunities that transformed this moment in the 80s and 90s until as late as 1997, 1997 when due to the crisis from January of the Islamist government and the secular opposition, um, the Islamists had to basically undergo a radical transformation and actually split into two camps. What, what role do you um, give to that aspect in their transformation? Thank you. Uh, I th- there are three different explanations how to account this cognitive shift in Turkey. One account is that it is very much opportunist shift, some people argue, because of the military coup in 1996 against the Islamic Prime Minister of Nejmetin Erbakan, then the parties were closed, and people argue that because of this fear, force these Islamic groups to become pro-European. This is one explanation that the military, they fear. The second uh, tries to explain it in terms of the, the European Union, the pressure from outside, both from United States and Europe, forced Islamic groups to change their mind, but it is a tactical change. They are really not changed. They are just trying to penetrate into the system. Then they will do whatever they want. This is the second. The third one that I try to develop, that is, this change is very much domestic. External factors, the European Union played a facilitating factor. And change was going on, change was going on since mid-1980s, because of, again, one of the factors that this new emerging Anatolian bourgeoisie. Also, when we talk about Turkish Islamic movement, the Turkish Islamic movement is a sector of activities. One is the political Islam. Political Islam was very much dominated by Erbakan, and Erbakan was anti-Europe, and but the new leadership somewhat... Um, allied itself with this new emerging Anatolian bourgeoisie and then very much they become the leaders of the movement but they also transform the movement. They are both the outcome of the movement, the new leadership of the Justice and Development Party, but they also transformed and redefined the movement in accordance of the needs of the new bourgeoisie. The second is the social Islam. The social Islam in Turkey, what I mean, is the Sufi orders. The Sufi orders have always been pro-West and pro-Europe in Turkey. The Naqshbandis or the Nurjus, because for the Sufi orders, the biggest threat was communism, and they very much welcomed Turkey's entry into NATO and Turkey's close ties with the European Union and European institutions because of the communism. And what we are seeing is that the new leadership of the Justice and Development Party is also coming from these Sufi orders. So the Sufi networks also played a key role. And third, third um, actor in the sector of the Islamic movement is the radical Islam or Hezbollah. But these are very small groups. Sometimes they act as gangs, sometimes they act as political organizations. The boundary between the two is not always clear, but we still do have these radical 
terrorist organizations such as Hezbollah. And, uh, but what is the dominant today? What puts the public image? What, is the domi- what, what shapes the discourse in Turkey as far as politics, foreign policy, and domestic politics is concerned? I would say very much the political-oriented groups, but these groups are now, I would argue, very much shaped by these new actors in Anatolia, this new bourgeoisie. So I don't think the, this is not an, certainly the coup played a role in terms of banning the old guard and opening room for the younger generation. I, I think it opened a new opportunity and helped and facilitated, speed up the process of this transformation. But the coup in itself, we, we see what happened in Algeria. So the coups or the using force is not a solution to transform the movement. It failed in the case of Algeria or some other places. Yes? I was wondering why you couldn't just stick to your, the identity story that you originally told, namely that you know, <coughs> late 19th, early 20th, Ottoman Empire defined itself in terms of Russia, and then the Soviet Union and the Cold War. So why hasn't like, the death of the Soviet Union caused an identity crisis vis-a-vis Turkey such that simultaneously with the rise of uh, you know, jihadism within Islam that Turkey understands itself now as, aha, we're like the Euro-Islamic alternative to um, jihadism, and, you know, and we're also part of Europe because Europe is more welcoming. And there's also material implications of this such that when the Soviet Union dies, U.S. in particular, um, indulgence of military governments in Turkey drops such that that alternative kind of disappears. And simultaneously, uh, Europe becomes far more welcoming of this uh, Protestant Islam, as you call it. Um, I think with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, when the other is gone, uh, one would expect a crisis because, you know, this whole master-slave type thing. But um, uh, what happened, I think, before Cold War was over, there was a process to create internal others. Today, what you have this really, when external other is gone, disappears, uh, Turkey today has its internal other. That internal other is very much the Kurds for the Turks and Turks for the Kurds. So uh, the Turkish identity today, the Turkishness, is, I would argue, is very much defined in opposition to Kurdish identity in relation to Europe. That, that the Europe, that the, we are uh, the new phase of Islam, we are um, ready to play this role in terms of Protestantization of Islam. Some people, they, what they claim. And um, certainly with the, um, there is also this issue of the military, what, what, type of role military historically played in the construction of the Turkish identity. Again, it was a security played a key role during the Cold War era. But now the, the security, need for security is not external. It is very much it became internal inside the country. And people tried to address to that internal search for security, not through the military means, but other means in terms of democratization, the cultural rights 
and through the human rights discourse and also through the police rather than the military becomes a mean for it. Is it? Yes. Um, I guess you talked about the cognitive revolution uh, that was accompanied by a change in the political language of the country. I think what I don't necessarily see in this picture is that you're, you seem to exclude certain factors that help to play a role in the cognitive revolution. Um, the so-called Anatolian bourgeoisie can be divided essentially into two. Most of them are the migrants that migrated from the east to the west to big cities and established um, economic corporations and firms and flourished. And then the others are within Anatolia, um, providing jobs and security, in a sense, economic security, as well as ontological security to the Anatolian people. So what I see, in addition to what you said, are at least two things. Looking to the big cities, to the centers of politics, if you like, we see the frustration of people as well as the withdrawal of the secularist camelists. So that's, that might be a factor for the rise of the new Islamist groups. When we look at Anatolia, and at the same time, we see again uh, a lot of frustration, a lot of poverty, and the, again, so-called um, Anatolian bourgeoisie provides a lot to these people what the secular, so-called secular governments have not provided before. So given these two factors, what exactly is the cognitive revolution you're talking about? Whose cognition changed necessarily? I think I, think I don't see that. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, this Anatolian bourgeoisie, what happens, they move from their village to the capital of the province. So they don't move to Istanbul. The old bourgeoisie very much uh, centered around Istanbul. But the new bourgeoisie organized uh, within the framework of the Musiyat. Uh, the Musiyat, uh, the, the power base of Musiyat is Konya and Kayseri. These are two central Anatolian cities. Konya, Kayseri, Gaziantep, and Chorum. So what we are seeing is that um, the, the, the economic activity very much doesn't move to uh, Istanbul, and they stay in Anatolia, and these uh, new firms or the companies, they are, I would argue, in a dual rebellion. On one hand, they are rebelling against traditional notion of self-sufficiency of the petty bourgeoisie or traditional notion of Islam, Muslim merchant uh, character that they want to accumulate wealth and they want to not remain self-sufficient but to move, you know, become... Uh, and also, the second, this new bourgeoisie, unlike the traditional merchants, are not nationalistic, and they are more uh, outward-oriented. They see the future in Europe or in the foreign trade rather than inside. Especially this group helped to achieve a cognitive map, create a new cognitive map, by supporting 
local TV stations, high schools, private high schools, the colleges. So what you are having is that the Kemalist top-down imposed cognitive map somewhat shattered uh, as a result of these new alternative ways of seeing, reading, and acting in different Anatolian uh, uh, towns and cities, especially the TV stations, especially the new uh, radio stations in Anatolia, new cultural centers, and new form of architecture, where much tries to revive the Ottoman architecture, Ottoman furniture, this whole revival of Ottomanism. And also this Ottomanism in identity sense, that the, not the national Turkishness, but this Ottomanism, this imperial identity, somewhat more useful to link and imagine oneself as European than the Turkish identity, given the Ottoman legacy in the Balkans. And um, I would argue that this Anatolian bourgeoisie financed and played an incredible role, even New, now the American universities, they have more Turkish students than a decade ago. I am sure even your own university as well. I would say this is one of the reasons because of Özalian neoliberal economic revolution. Because of those private colleges, they provided a much better education and language training. And because of the private universities in the country, because they allow, they give quotas for those who do well in the university exams and then some of them they come to the United States. So what we are seeing is this outward change in in Turkey. I think at the core of this uh, there are a number of factors but for me I think the most critical factor is this new Anatolian bourgeoisie in terms of its connections with the public sphere education politics and then the, as a result of these, their projection in terms of the foreign policy and orientation of the country. Yes? Um, given the domestic engendering of this Protestantization, I'm wondering what happens to it in international networks. I'm wondering if this Anatolian bourgeoisie has important business Good. connections with the Turkish diaspora in the EU, I imagine, if these are also ideological connections. And given that the kind of Islamism one hears from within the EU has a much more problematic relationship with Europe and with liberalism, I'm wondering which way the influences are likely to run. Just last, I think this is an excellent point. Just last week, the Musiat organized one of the largest conferences in Istanbul. The conference is the Muslim NGOs, the first attempt to bring all Muslim NGOs, the Representatives in Istanbul, they had a huge conference, and now they created a Muslim NGO center in Istanbul, and it is organized and financed by Musiat, this Anatolian bourgeoisie, just last week. And foreign minister gave, uh, went and gave a talk, and there were a number of um, Arab intellectuals representatives uh, from Arab and other NGOs. So um, it has, especially their connections with Europe, uh, 
Musiat has a center in Sarajevo. They support one high school in Travnik in Bosnia-Herzegovina. They, they support the financial means of this uh, high school uh, guided by the Gulen movement in um, in Bosnia. So you do have this transnational connection in terms of education, in terms of NGO activities, uh, both in Europe and in larger uh, Muslim countries as well. Uh, what type of impact would it lead to Turkish type of Protestant or Euro-Islam I don't think so. I don't think Turkey is a model. I don't think one can create a model out of Turkey, but there is a Turkish experiment which helps us to identify conditions under which Islamic movement is likely to become more liberal or non-Islamic or post-Islamic. And these conditions, I identify three conditions. One is the... uh, the bourgeoisie, indigenous bourgeoisie. Second is the public sphere, the communication networks that allows this debate and discussion. Third one is the political opportunity spaces. So if you have this economic, political, and public sphere opportunity spaces, you are likely to get more liberalized, more pluralist version of Islam. But again, Turkey cannot, given the historical Legacy, given the history of the country and given the history of other countries, I don't think Turkey can become a model and I don't believe in one country becoming a model and to assume that there is only one highway. And um, I think other countries, especially Malaysia and Indonesia, what we are seeing is when the bourgeoisie becomes the agent of change, there is nothing to worry there. This is the way I see I see when the bourgeoisie is the agent of change, you know, there is less room for skepticism and worry. When the politicians are in the forefront without any tax base, then I have concern, especially when the kings or the families, it creates more problem and more concern. Yes, or any other question? Uh, okay, go ahead, please. Thank you very much. Uh, um, looking at the GDP of Turkey, it's about almost $450 billion. And the another largest country in terms of population is Egypt. The GDP and the per capita income is almost half of what is Turkey's. It's about... Uh, 3,000 per capita income in Turkey, it's about 6,000 something. And also with Iran, which is an oil rich country, still the Turkish GDP and per capita income is higher. But why the inflation is that 30%? And I, the, the Minister of Finance was here on a key time about a month ago, and his two son, daughter and son, graduated from our college of, Fisher College of Business. And I, I raised the same question with him. And he said we are uh, experimenting with the what do you call the monetary reforms that we might drop some of the zeros from, from the millions of some years. And I do not know whether it's now, at what stage is this? this, this Turkish economy, the structural, there are problems in Turkish economy. There are structural problems. And uh, one of the main problems in Turkey is corruption. Unfortunately, this government has failed. Miserably, it has failed to address the question of corruption. It is still there. And um, 
inflation used to be 90%, 80%, but now I think it is 20%. It is going down. I think it is success there. And um, growth rate is 9.9% this year. It is higher than China. It is one of the fastest growth rate. But those numbers somewhat doesn't translate to unemployment. Unemployment is higher in the country. It used to be 10%, now it is 12%. So there are problems in the IMF policies uh, when it comes to distribution of income. Turkey has one of the major problems in terms of the distribution of income, and unfortunately IMF policies are not helpful at all, and current government is not also trying to come up with new policies because they very much ally themselves with the uh, bourgeoisie, and they want to lower the taxes. This, I, there are social costs, there are social implications, and I don't know what would emerge in the long run. But the economy uh, is doing well, but the structural problems of the economy is there. Turkey, um, uh, I think the fourth or fifth debtor country after Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. So the Turkey is economically not in good shape. But again, the corruption is one of the fundamental issues. And uh, still, it is not cleaned up. I think the corruption is, especially in the municipalities, is still going on. Seeing no more questions, thank you very much. Uh, The next, the next lecture is Kerry Rozevsky-Wickham uh, on mobilizing Islamism in Egypt.